You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads connect the past to the present? Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, the authors of The Favor, Nikki French, followed by Wonder Dog about dogs and humans, written by Jules Howard. Joining us now is the husband and wife writing team, Nikki Gerard and Sean French, talk about their latest novel, The Favor. And guys, thank you for favoring us and joining the, and joining the conversation. Good to be here. Thank you for having us. So here's, I'm going to go off script a little bit if you don't mind. Because I, go for it. I, script best. I think the title is very provocative, very simple, The mm. Favor. So I'll pose this question first to a Nikki. Has anybody ever in your past asked you a favor and it's kind of gone off track or gone wrong? My goodness, do you know, you're the first person to ask us, me that. that. I can think of one example where somebody asked me for a favor and I turned them down. I'm actually not going to say what it was because it feels a bit too raw. And I've kind of, for the rest of I've regretted it ever since. I felt I did a wrong thing to say no. All right. I pose the same question to Sean. Well, what happened is one, I, I think that's, that is so interesting. Because, I mean, in a way, because I have to say, I'm not actually not going to, I can't think of a concrete example. What I can definitely say is that Nikki and I, it's something that we talked about for years before we wrote the book, about this idea of if someone, like an old friend, who you feel that you owe something to, right. if they've helped you out in the past in a big way, they come to you and just ask you for a favour, do you have to do it? And it's like a moral obligation. And obligation. And and I'm I'm sorry, sorry, I'm We're going to talk over each other. I know the feeling that some, maybe sometimes you look back and you realise that some friend or someone has asked you for something and you maybe you let them down. Maybe you weren't willing to kind of be there for them. I think maybe we all have that feeling. And I think that it's that kind of regret over the past that we because I think the things that we make us want to write a book are these things that nag, nag away at you and you can't let them go. I mean, actually, when we were, when we've been talking about this idea of the favour and whether it's kind of whether you have kind of almost like a moral obligation to right. be unconditionally right. loyal. And we've had this conversation over the years and we've had, and we've kind of not agreed on it. And in a way it's that not agreeing on it that's the most important thing for the, for the kernel of this book. It's that kind of argument that you have between. Can, about can I, I'm interested. Can I ask you a very personal question? <laughs> one, <laughs> one, if we haven't already, uh, one of the greatest pen names of all is John Le Carrier also an English writer. So did you guys kind of wrestle with how you're going to come yeah. up with the pen name? Yeah, well, it's really, in a way, it's a bit mundane because we, we, we wrote the first book we wrote 25 years ago. We wrote a book as an experiment to see if we could collaborate. We were then both journalists. And it so happened that first book we wrote, it had to be about a woman. It had to have a woman as its main right. character right. telling the story. And because of that, when we always knew we wanted one name on the cover, not, not both our names, because we wanted to be one novelist. And so because it was being told by a woman, we thought, well, it should have a woman's name. And we did. We, we struggled. So we, we tried to come up with clever names. And people, we spent months. We even used Scrabble titles and tried to make <laughs> of our names. And then we came up with other names that we liked. And our publisher just kept saying, no, 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 no. And then we had this... Fiendishly clever idea of taking my first name and someone's last name and coupling. And, and it's definitely worked for you. I, I am a huge fan of the BBC and the programs come out of the BBC. And right now I've been watching something we call on Masterpiece on PBS in the States. And it's Magpie Murders, which is amazing. So let me tell oh. you, let me tell you where I'm going. Because I want to yeah. I want to walk away with something that I didn't know about. I've been to England a couple of times, but very, very short periods of time. I, I love the country. I was in London. That this is what the author whose Mag Magpie Murders TV series is based on. And he said, in a sense, England is a rural country. We think about London. We think about maybe Manchester. And he says, it's an, if it is a rural country and areas, 
Everybody knows everybody else. I'm thinking of your two lead characters who come from a small community. Correct me if I'm wrong. And they are the people that are driving your narrative. And that's June and Liam. Mm. Because they, you give us a picture of, in a sense, I don't know what's purely rural, but they, they mm-hmm. kind of know everybody in their community, even though their interactions are interesting as, as a novel unfolds. But that fascinated me that we don't think of England as basically little small snippets of areas where everybody knows everybody else. Well, I say that we spend, we divide our time. We spend half our time in London, real in the heart of how gritty sort of East London. And half of that at the moment, we're talking, we're sitting in this, on the edge of a tiny village about 80 miles north of London. And that is very dark, very very quiet, very few people. And you're exactly right. I think we, we sometimes, we've actually written other novels set in, in, uh, in, in small, in the countryside, in small villages. And what we, I think the thing we try and explore in that is that, that slight nightmare. Yeah, I mean, people think of, oh, it's lovely, your community and people, everyone knows everyone. But that's pretty creepy as well, the idea that you're always being looked at. You're, everyone knows your secrets. Everyone's gossiping about you, whereas in the city, you can lose yourself a bit. So I think that's perceptive. About that. I mean, di- di- different stories apply different settings. So in the, the novels that we write that are set in London, it's about lives rubbing up against each other and bumping into each right. other. And yet people not being known, being anonymous, being lonely. And in the country, that thing of, of, of kind of being in this kind of mythological England, if you like, the, the England of, of villages and village greens and cricket and and kind of labelly people, which is both, it's, it's like an idyll in, its, in some forms, and it's also like a nightmare, that thing of people just, everyone knows what everyone else is doing. So different novels require different settings. I mean, we've always thought that when we talk about the next novel that we're going to be writing, we talk about the plots and we talk about the characters, we talk about kind of what's going to make it compelling. And then very quickly we talk about the setting and we always kind of do a lot of kind of walking around the setting, kind of feeling what it's, the ground is like, the kind of air smells like, the kind of houses look like. And it feels absolutely crucial that we have a real sense of where it is of, of kind of what that particular particular pungent so, pungent area is like. Let's remind you. I grew up in London. I just say I should say I grew up in London and spent my whole yeah youth in London. Never went to the countryside at all. And Nikki grew up in the in countryside. So we get so, we have two sides of us. So it's a, it's a natural marriage in a sense. You got oh, the yeah, yin yeah. the yin and the yang and everything else. I just remind <laughs> the audience. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. My guests are the author of the favorite Nikki French. I'm going to get personal again. Oh wow! <laughs> all right. Okay. Everybody remembers, for better or worse their first love. It is so unique, it is so special, no matter where you are in your personal journeys, it's always gonna be a part of you. So I'll ask both of you again, tell us a little about what you remember about, and the audience can't see, but- <laughs> Sean, you can start. All right, Nikki's smiling, but Sean is gonna start. Your first love, what do you remember Jeez. about that? I because I think one of the points is we wanted uh, is uh, what we wanted. No, no, is I think one of the things about this book is it's a kind of mythology of a kind of first love. And I no, and I'm I don't think I really I don't think I really have you know, I didn't have a kind of teenage first love. I was so I think maybe I felt a bit excluded from that or on the outside. So I think in a way, I, I was in a way interested, you know, I think often you write about things you didn't have. I'm going to say something terrible. Nick, you was my first love. Very real first love. So I had a teenage first love who wasn't Sean. Yeah. Sean was my last love. That's much more important. Well, there you go. <laughs> Sean is my, so, but my, I, and I absolutely think there's something about, there's something about, falling in love for the first time and it's about self-discovery it's the formation of the self it's about losing the self so i mean it's an extraordinary kind of joyful painful excruciating thing to go through and it 
often has a hold on people for years and decades. And so people look back with nostalgia. And that's one of the things we were writing about in the favour, the danger of that nostalgia, the golden glow you cast back on on those kind of heady days. So no, I mean, can I just say, just begin to just say a tiny bit, just to make sense of people listening, because they need to, in a way you need to know the beginning of this book. This whole the idea is of this favour is this this young woman who's a very successful young doctor, and this man Liam comes out of her past. She's a he was a big affair she had when she was a, just in her last year at school, a teenager, and he comes and asks her to do something. Really, just as giving me this one favor, and I think one of the things that we, the, the readership needs to think is why she the, this being a you know spoiler alert, this being a Nicky French uh, uh, novel, it take it turns out very badly. And I think one of the things we want the reader to think of why would someone do something like this for someone? And you know, well, and there is of course there is this idea always. Everyone has this 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 something this golden love from their from their. From the, you know, from when they were young, and and but we want that you know, so it's one that's one of the issues of why you know what what is the hold that the past like that has over us. I'm I'm going to raise something else, maybe slightly off topic, but it fascinates me <laughs> that I saw a short video of an Irishman playing the cello, playing Amazing Grace, and he hopes mm-hmm. the and this is the day in the states before the election. He hopes that that message translates across the Atlantic to us here in this country. And the reason why I mention that is the power of sound and music. Now, in the beginning of the book, there is a horrific car crash. Four people in the car, two of your primary characters. I wonder for both Jude and Liam, that sound of that car crash still resonates with them throughout the book. That's such a wonderful way of pushing it. I, I appreciate that because I think in a way that that's what we were trying to do. We wanted to have this intense first scene and then we kind of leap forward in time. But that first scene, the things that were felt and the sound that tore through it and ripped their lives up, we wanted it to be reverberating because it's like an image of the past reverberating. Right. The past the past does not let go of us and we don't let go of the past. We just need to know how to absorb the past and how to and how to manage the feelings that we have of it, have about it. And the thing you were saying about playing amazing grace and the power of music or of art to kind of cut through kind of the kind of the stuff of ordinary life. That's absolutely right. And it's one of the wonders of reading fiction is that barriers come down and that we can, can think with kind of empathy and compassion about other people's lives. And I think most writers, whatever else they're trying to do, are straining towards that. Also, I have to say, whatever else I may or may not have done, I have been in a car crash. And then and we really tried to, I mean, it's, you mentioned the sound. I think one of the if you've never actually been in a car crash, there's something, you know, you can't understand what it's like that actual, when this pristine car you're in, when it hits, you know, hits something solid and things start to smash. That's something we've, we've tried to convey that, that the very this strangeness of what, of what, a, of what, a, what, when your life falls apart in that sort of way, when you have a, you know, it goes wrong. There is a lot, let me just throw this out yeah. before I forget, because you remember <laughs> probably better than mine. When I read a book, I want to walk away with what I call little moments. There are big moments. The car crash is a big moment. There are other big moments in this book, especially about, we're not going to give it away. There's a major reveal later on that makes a lot of sense as we go through the story. There's a little moment in this book where Danny is the mother of Liam's child. And it was a tattoo artist. And she, I'm hopefully uh, quoting directly from what she says. Because I think this is foreshadowing, which is part of the art and craft of storytelling. And she says, tattoos should have a secret meaning for a person who bears them. And I think this is so interesting. It's a very small moment, but it captured my attention. I wonder what you were thinking about when you when you wrote that. Well, one thing that Nicky and I, one thing that we really share, the kind of thrillers that we write, a lot about... You know, there's a, a terrorist on the loose, or you know, or is you know, trying to catch a serial killer. It's about the feeling that 
Every, we all have secrets. Uh, you know, and we, I, I think that we feel that, and it, that applies just to all of us. Uh, everyone's got their certain things, certain things in the past, certain things that they that they keep from their friends or, their, or even their partner. And, they, so that, and, you know, and that's something we look down to all, over and over again, that things may seem calm, and life may seem perfect, but that, there's always a fact there. Always something new. We're always a step or two away from from it all going wrong. And also, I mean, that tattoo and the you know, the secrets that tattoos kind of hold without right, quite getting right. away. That's quite a good image for how we all go through life, holding our secrets. And that's also quite a good way of thinking about the kind of psychological thrillers that we write, where we take ordinary lives and we crack them open, and we're allowed to see inside what's usually hidden. So over and over again, what we're doing with our novels is that we're kind of taking the surface and we're cracking it open and we're seeing into the heart of things, which also means what people's lives mean to them. I think you're so right about the little moments that stay with you, because it's the little moments, those tiny, naked, intimate moments that reveal a person or reveal a plot. Now, here's something most people don't know. I learned this because I did a book on the history of surfing. Agatha Christie was a surfer and a good, and a good surfer. Now, why do, why do I mention Agatha Christie besides the obvious reasons? Because you have a scene in this book that involves the funeral and the wake. And it's almost Agatha Christie on steroids because it's almost like her drawing room books, mm. the mystery, because a lot of potential killers are in these scenes. And I think this is one of the most special parts of the book because a lot of people are involved. There are a lot of questions of being answered. Oh, this person could have done it. That person could have done it. What's this motivation? What's that motivation? And once again, I, I better or worse, I'm referring back to Agatha Christie and that great mm. tradition but you took it, in my mind, to another level. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you. I mean, I think the first, I mean, Agatha Christie just haunts, somehow haunts the crime, the British crime novel, and there's no way of getting away from it. And we certainly, uh, you know, I don't think, I, I think um, uh, Agatha, the actual Agatha Christie uh, would be, I think, I'm not sure if she'd like our kind of, the kind of world we write about, but certainly we'd like to try and take some of the, the certain qualities of the, the, the kind of the idea of you know this is the, the, the kind of what you might call a well-made story with, with, a, with a sting in the tail that she that she was so good at, but disguise it and put it in a really realistic set, setting. So you wouldn't even you know so I mean, it applies to some of our books more than others, but we certainly like to have that idea that there's a kind of mystery and an unexpected solution. In, but while telling what we think is a, a story about about a life that we all that we all can recognise about you know, about today's life in London. Yeah, I'm I'm I'm, I'm with that, and it's very nice to be compared to Agatha Christie. So thank you. I'm going. It's great. The thing about Agatha Christie, I mean, that's a very interesting thing about is because we because certainly in Britain, when we think of Agatha Christie, we see her photographs of her as this very very staid, right? Yes, old lady. But she, in the twenties, she was a wild figure, and you know, and a young. You know, you know, she, she was very different. Yeah, she had the kind of what the kind of drug taking, groovy, uh, surfing, you, you know, youth. She, you know, and then but then she became. We, we think, of, you know, we don't think of her. I never way. knew she was a surfer. Yeah, she, I've never. And, and she was. I've seen there. the pictures. She I believe she was a serious surfer. I don't know where you go surfing in England because the weather's not as good as here in other parts of the world. But she was very serious about surfing. Well, I can say also one of our one of our sons in law is a is a really serious surfer. And he does a lot of surfing on the, the southern coast of England. Terrific for surfing. I'm a big fan of the Maltese Falcon. Yeah. I'm going back to another small moment in the book, and I don't know if I'm off base or not. And this captured my attention in terms of the Maltese Falcon. There's a carved bowl in this series, and it's supposed to go to somebody. And I wonder what the carved bowl represents. may not be the Maltese Falcon, but it's a very small thing. But I'm saying, who, I know who created it, but who wants it? Who's getting it? Who wants to give it up? 
And that's also part of your plot twist. Yeah. Well, can I say first, before Nikki can answer it, but I'm going to say we're definitely, we're among, you know, we're, I, I, my father was a, was a film critic and I grew, I absolutely grew up just soaked in American movies. I loved and film noir and the, the multi-folk and all these, I just love it. And it was a big, I think that that's, that, that's been a big, a big influence on us, you know. So, but Nikki can now answer the real question about things handed down. In so the wooden bowl, not the golden bowl. So, so it's a bowl that's been, beautifully made we love wooden bowls and in fact we've had trees in our garden falling down and we've made them into wooden bowls so kind of that slow careful act of making something that's kind of still alive felt very kind of felt felt symbolic to us to pass on as a kind of object from the dead man and we are fascinated i mean everyone must be fascinated by what happens after someone dies and, and what happens to their possessions and how people how they assume this huge importance which they didn't have while that while the person was alive and how people fight over objects and invest them with meaning that they wouldn't have had otherwise and just the power invested in objects it, i mean it feels like you know a thing is not just a thing. A thing holds all sorts of different meanings. And this wooden bowl is like, who who owns Liam and who was loved by him? And and that's what the book is partly about as well. I mean, as you said right at the beginning, it's about, you know, we really try, it's such a great theme, the power that the past has over the present. And we like to take these things and make, can we make a thriller out of it? I think it's a kind of thriller about the why, you know, what about the effect of, you know, the past. So my listeners can't see you, but I'm watching you and I'm grateful because I believe it's important to read body language. You can see me, I can see you. So behind you is your bookcases. Mm -hmm. I cherish my books. Talking about objects, what do your books represent to you in terms of objects? And who do you want to pass your books along to later on? <laughs> that's a really big, that's a great that's question. A great question. Can I say, we are, our house is full. We have so many books and they mean so much to us. And I think all writers are passionate readers. It's just not possible to be a writer without being a reader. But um, I think they were, I, the trouble is, because they think that, yeah. Books we, are a problem now. I mean, we have books that we, we struggle with how many books we have. So they're beginning to pile up on the floor, not just being in bookshelves. It's very hard to get rid of a book. And a book, we, we treat books very differently. So Sean treats books like they're sacred objects. Very, very carefully, bookmarks. And right, right. They look like they're new. And I treat books like they kind of have to bear the scars of, of, of all my reading of them. So they're kind of full of sand and pages are torn down and... The spine is flat. So we, we have very different ways of being owners of books. Who would we pass them on to? Well, I mean, our children, we have four children, and they love reading. But they don't live in a place that would house that many books. And it's a terrible thought that, you know, when we die, where will they all go? I don't know where they'll all go. Can I raise something I found fascinating? Gabriel Garcia Mar um, Marquez said, that we have three lives, a public life, a private life, and a secret life. And I certainly for Jude, because that's part of the big reveal, she definitely has a secret life. Do any of the other characters also have secret lives? Because that, fa that, that secret life to me is the internal dialogue we have with ourselves. We won't, sh we share our, pri our public life to a certain degree. We share our, our private life, our professional lives, but in our heads are our secret lives. I, yes. And sometimes they never ever are exposed. Yes, and I love this question. And it's something we talk about really a lot because the, that thing about everyone having, I think all our characters, have a secret life because all people necessarily everyone has a secret life and there's a distinction there between the secrets we hold some of which might be ones that are not good secrets that are burdensome that needs to be told that they're aching to get out and people are weighed down by these kind of bad secrets or or heavy secrets that right. need to be expressed right. and then there's just the secret self, which is more like your secret garden of yourself, which everybody needs. You can never, no one knows anyone else fully because everyone has to have 
this place is just for them, just for their own thoughts, their dreams, their imagination, which is impossible to share. And shouldn't, you shouldn't ask people to share that secret garden. I have to say, I think that quote could be an epigraph for every novel we've ever written. Because I think that's all, that's one of our, I think that's absolutely the, at the heart of what we're always right, you know, returning to over and over again. I'm going to pause. One of the things that I fascinates me, and I have raised it before, so people forgive me if they heard this. A Kenyan, American artist of Kenyan descent once said, and I think this is so profound, I think of my legacy and others, that when a grandparent dies, a whole library is lost. Not the books, but the memories that came from generations past that can be lost. So I think it's so important, I'm getting a soapbox, to keep those memories and libraries going when loved ones pass. You said you've got all these books, you know what you can do with your books with your ch for children, but certainly you want your memories to live on. Yes, and of course some of them won't live on. And that's one of the terrible things in a couple who've been together for a long time and one of them dies, that whole shared memory bank gets lost. And of course, you know, I think I think you're right. And then we're each other's gate, you know, we're everyone, you know, intimate groups of people are each other's gatekeeper and holder of that memory. And when somebody, I mean, I often think that, what, you know, people are like whole worlds. They're like em their own little empire. And when they die, inevitably, there will be great swathes of memory that cannot be saved. They just go. But what you hope is that, the what remains, the important thing, but kind of the memory and the love and the intimacy and the shared memories, those are what get retained. But there is something haunting about that. that I, I mean, I, I, when I think of myself, I know quite a lot about my parents, a bit about my grandparents. And beyond that, I know almost nothing at all. And there's something strange about how quickly you can be, you can just receive, you can just be, you know, things can disappear. And yet you carry people for you know, you carry people inside you that you don't even know existed. I mean, things that... You know, I think that I, both sets of grandparents of mine, I didn't know that well. Right. I know that I can contain things from them because they pass them down to my parents. So we carry that, we kind of unconsciously carry people. Now, we, we have two minutes left. Okay. Uh, and I wish we had two hours left. But it, we always end every segment. I have two minutes left. That the segment ends with, what did I miss what did I get wrong? So for both of you, what did I miss? What did I get wrong? Well, um, I guess I said it about myself. About Nikki. I think we've all got, there, there's so many things we could talk about. You know, I, Nikki, we both of us have other lives. So I, I mean, I've got a whole, I think what lots of people, if I wanted to say something about myself that people don't know, it's that my, and it has an effect on me. And my, a, and my father, I said, was a song critic. But my, my, I'm half Swedish, my mother's Swedish. And I can speak, I speak Swedish, have lots of Swedish family. And I think that's had a big, a big effect on me, being not being growing up English, but not quite English, in a way that people might not know about me, even if they've met me. And I guess for me, I'd say that um, I'm a I'm a humanist celebrant. So I bury people who have no faith, and I'm a campaigner for the rights of people who live with dementia. And I'm going to come to what you've got wrong. And I don't think you've got anything wrong. <laughs> Well, I'm going to remind our audience, this has been a pleasure and an honor. My guests and others of the favor, Nikki Gerard and Sean French. Thank you so much. After the break, Jules Howard joins us with his new book called Wonder Dog. And I'm looking forward to this all through my life. I've had dogs in and out, and they have been very special to me. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast Artful Periscope. Be right back. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. Jules Howard is the author of Wonder Dog, The Science of Dogs and Their Unique Friendship with Humans. This is what Professor, Professor Alice Roberts said, and she wrote, I quote, hopefully accurately, a brilliant History, how it reveals how we come to know dogs and better 
and how that's helped us understand ourselves. And I've been so looking forward to this conversation. I've had dogs in my life for time before I can remember to the, right now as we speak. And Jules, thank you so much for making some time for us. Honestly, total pleasure. Thank you for having me. So I think when I walk away from what I do, for better or worse, I want to learn, I want to have new insights that I can carry away. And your book has so much insights for me about the behavior of dogs and also about ourselves. So along the way, when you're researching this book, what insights did you gain? I think, yeah, that's a really good question, actually. Um, for a long time, uh, I didn't think I was capable of writing a book about dogs. And that's because, you know, there are some absolutely fantastic uh, um, dog writers, as they're called, out there. Right. Um, who have been involved and focused really heavily on dogs, you know, for 20 or so years. Um, so I always kind of wanted to write about dogs, but I thought maybe I'm not the right person to. But I think the, the big takeaway I learned and the reason I got into this book was by thinking about um, perspective and about how the ideas that we have about dogs, the scientific ideas we have about dogs um, have been shaped over time. And that, you know, what we think of now as the, you know, the way to um, be good companions to dogs is slowly changing the more research that we have. So there was that kind of learning, I guess, was fascinating. But also this idea that, you know, a lot of zoologists, and this, I would say this is definitely the case for me, spend a lot of time looking to chimpanzees, gorillas, dolphins for the big wow moments in terms right. of animal cognition. And then I... The, <laughs> the kind of big surprise was, oh, wow, actually, these animals are among us. They're in our houses. And actually, dogs, you know, offer us a really interesting window into the world of animal cognition and hopefully get us closer to the whole animal kingdom as well as just to um, just to them, you know? So in the book, I believe you wrote this, you said, and this fascinates me because I'm always trying to understand the animals in my life, that the new chimpanzees in terms of communication and understanding words are dogs. That fascinated me. Can you amplify on that? The, um, the, in about, in the sort of eighties and nineties, there was a lot of research done with callback experiments. So you take, you play sounds back to animals in the wild. So vervet monkeys were one of the famous ones and to a degree chimpanzees and even meerkats as well. And there was real, uh, amazement, um, at the fact that, wow, you know, certain noises, um, cause animals within, a, say, a meerkat troop to either look to the sky if there's an eagle or look to the floor if there's a scorpion. And that was, and I remember, you know, doing zoology at the time, you know, my, my tutor just could not believe the strength of this science. And at the same time, we were realising that actually dogs are capable. There's a dog called Rico in about uh, the year 2000 or there, thereabouts that was on TV and... Uh, Rico's trainer, companion, was showing everyone, wow, this dog can collect 200 toys by name. Right. And, you know, there's sort of there's a sort of dichotomy there. You know, we're sort of amazed that meerkats can do three or four. And then dogs are on TV doing 200. And obviously, Rico became world famous among the sort of evolution. Actually, you know, they were like, okay, we'll do a call out to um, try and find other uh, uh, Einstein dogs and you know there's, a, there's been some fantastic ones most notably Chaser who was able to do more than a thousand he was able to retrieve more than a thousand items um, by name a thousand toys by name and also categorise toys as you know a uh, fluffy toy and categorise it as say Pikachu the doll so Pikachu was the, 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 the name but also it was in the of fluffy toy so all these things that we see humans do effortlessly turns out you know some not all but you know dogs are, seem capable of that of that too and again I, I mean I call the book Wonder Dog for that reason is actually like I said before these animals are all around us and the scientists that notice their amazing um, talents their personalities and their charisma that really is what um, sends the science onto a, onto a new level so in a previous episode I had Dr. Morden on wrote the book about the history of Mars, which goes back 4.5 billion years. You have what, for lack of a better phrase, the toilet bowl 
toilet bowl <laughs> roll anthology. I had to get that out to explore, to explain, and I guess explore human history. Tell us, I mean, I like the way your mind works because everybody can see uh, pulling a, a piece of toilet paper down. I don't know if it's from the top or below because people have personal preferences which way it's on the roll. But just, <laughs> just talk. I mean, you're laughing, but it's brilliant the way you set that all up. Well, that's nice of you to say. I actually, I remember saying at one point, uh, like, maybe that's got to go. We need to take that out. But the publishers were like, no, no, it's okay. So um, one of the, the problems that I have, and I don't know if you have this too, is, you know, with geological time is getting your head around the fact that this is an instant in a, what is an incredibly expansive amount of times since the formation of Earth, you know, 4.5 um, billion years ago. And I wanted to get across really the fact that do it's incredibly recent that dogs have just kind of become a familiar object of people's homes. So the analogy I use is if you had a, I think it's if you've got the start of the toilet roll, right, and that is the first, if you like, um, uh, part of the human lineage. So you could say cave people, if you like. Um, so toilet roll starts at cave people unroll it and roll it it's something like 344 um, bits of paper within a toilet roll so you unroll the whole thing and that's geological time since the start of the human lineage and the last two millimeters of the toilet roll are when we invited dogs into our homes so this this speaks to the fact that you know it's really easy for us and i did this and i do this still to look at dogs and go okay wow this is a bond that's been this tight and this strong for ages but no it's actually a bit of a cultural switch that seems to have happened in the last 150 years um and before that you know the the, the vast majority of dogs in people's lives were those dogs that wandered around um city streets and in fact you know 90 percent of dogs on planet earth of course are free-ranging dogs they're not dogs that you would um uh, that would sit on your lap so to speak so it's I, I find it really important to remind myself of that all the time when talking about um dogs and the sort of co cognitive powers that they have you know these are animals that have learned most of their techniques and their um, evolutionary ticks you know literally on the street rather than in our houses so yeah thank you for saying that about the toilet roll timeline i'm glad i put it in now <laughs> well job well done so i i've always been fascinated by wolves i really have i'd like to see one up close they just their heritage and their history fascinate me i sure i saw a video on twitter were oh, and by the way, the wolves were reintroduced into North America to Yellowstone, and what they found with the reintroduction of the wolves and that pack, the ecosystem improved, newer animals flourished again, and the most interesting of all, meandering waterways straightened out, which is better for the ecology. So this woman comes back into Yellowstone or somewhere in the states. Charging up to her many years later was the leader of the wolf pack. And he, he embraces her and almost rolls over. Because when an animal rolls over, that means they trust you. And I looked at that and I said, in a visceral way, that speaks about the animal kingdom. Because a lot of people talk about dogs came from wolves and also, it's interesting, if you compare the wolf brain to dog brain, the dog brain is about 10% less. So how did that all happen? The, the, I suppose the first thing to quietly say is that, you know, human brains are 10% smaller than they were um, 50 or 50,000 years or so ago. And it seems to be a strange quirk of kind of domestic domestication. And we're not quite sure why it happens, but it seems to be something that happens, um, uh, you know, in a few animals that are d domesticated, so to speak. Um, but as to, yeah, as to how it all began, there's a certain, I think, a real beauty in the fact that, like, if I, my kids right now are downstairs watching Back to the Future 3. And just before I came up to speak to you, they said, you know, we were having the discussion about where would you go back in time? And I used to be kind of like, oh, I'd love to see dinosaurs. But in fact, I would love to see that first moment or moments that humans and, and wolves came into contact. Because I don't think we'll ever know for sure what happened. There's the kind of school of thought that um, uh, pet keeping, if you like, 
um, particularly with children, children bonding with wild animals and bringing them home, right. seems to be a kind of cross-cultural thing, including in many societies that haven't had contact with, you know, Western civilization. We see that really commonly. So were they pets or was it because, you know, humans create a lot of waste and, you know, certain populations of wolves, if they're living close by, will quickly learn, okay, this is a potential food source for us, all of this waste, all of this old bones, et cetera. And fe- human feces, of course, which is what many wild dogs feed upon um, today. So I, I kind of like the fact that we might not know. And it, I, perhaps that makes me quite a strange science writer because most science writers really want to home in on the facts. But I think there's a real beauty really in um, allowing ourselves to, uh, to imagine that within the framework of what we know from science. There's a very disturbing part of the book, and we go from Darwin and Pavlov and Skinner, where they are experimenting on dogs, and they're awake, and they're opening them up to measure the gastric juices in terms of their reaction. And that, in my mind, was pure torture. How did that happen? I totally agree. It's it's it's, it's torture. And... Uh, there was a, a sort of wave, if you like, of um, a, a trend, a cultural trend in science that seemed to appear kind of after Darwin. Darwin, kind of a, a bit of an anecdotal kind of scientist, you know, and wrote with dog, you know, his, his dogs at his feet and, you know, right. used them a lot in his writing in a non-exploratory uh, way. But after that, you know, the, the new trend was... There's industrial revolution, long-term studies. So in other words, rather than just going, oh, let's put a dog in this situation and see what happens, a lot of um, scientists like Pavlov were really interested in long-term experiments, you know, getting that um, x-axis as long as possible. So what that essentially meant was operating on dogs, keeping them alive for as long as possible and looking at how certain, um, as you say, items of torture, if you like, would affect their physiology. And it was only through um, those discussions, through those observations, basically Pavlov was measuring, as you say, the amount of gastric juices dogs were uh, producing. Only through that did he notice, oh goodness, whenever the person who comes in to feed the dogs walks in the room, that these dogs are already salivating. And that is not, I don't know, I'd be interested to know if this is a UK thing, but that is definitely not the story I was told when I was learning zoology and psychology. You know, to us, Pavlov was, uh, you know, a nice gentleman with, you know, a couple of dogs and a nice bell. Of course, we now realise the bell was a mistranslation of um, buzzer. Um, So it was, again, I was kind of interested to, to see that, but also very nervous, I suppose, of including too many details. So I kind of put the the... The stuff that I felt was challenging for many readers, including me, to be honest, to read, I, I obviously chose to put that in a further reading section, but working out where that that fine line was, because I think that story's worth, it's actually very important to see kind of where we've come from so that we can never make those mistakes again in future, I guess. There's another very important story. I'll remind my audience. This is the podcast off of Periscope. My guest is Jules Howard. The book is called Wonder Dog, The Science of Dogs and Their Unique Friendship with Humans. I have a family member that's involved with CBT. And what I didn't know was, because I'm kind of researching it myself, the roots of CBT go back to, was it Seligman, I believe his name was? Yeah. That yeah. Because a lot of these dogs that were in these research came away traumatized with a lot of anxiety, shock therapy. And he was looking at a way to help them recover from that. And that's almost the seeds of what became now CBT, which is really cognitive behavior therapy, which based on my research and talking to um, my sister whose son takes it, it's very, very effective and it started with dog research. It's another aspect of dogs that we, uh, I certainly didn't know about that before researching this project. Another aspect that just sort of opens your eyes really about what this research was was telling us. And in fact, again, a bit, in some ways, this is the switch, the difference between Pavlov. So this, this occurred about 40, 50 years, I should say, after Pavlov. Um, it was research done on basically essentially dogs, um, in chambers with access to electric shocks. And it was looking at what, how dogs would respond. And the interesting um, observation was that some dogs actually chose to, well, I say chose, they ended up um, 
displaying a phenomenon called learned helplessness, which many dogs, unfortunately, in rescue centres, they're going to be well known to your listeners, where essentially they, they sit and take it. They don't bother fighting. And that um, was, again, quite a surprise. That doesn't really fit under evolutionary theory because, you know, you would expect dogs, no matter what, what to be fighting for every moment to avoid pain and torture. Um, but in fact, those scientists involved in that, including Seligman, um, were seeing that, this is the difference between, I think, Pavlov and Seligman. Seeing that, Seligman was able to think, okay, well, what would repair that? And his gut feeling, and of course lived through World War One and World War Two, and seen the effects of war, you know, many of these scientists, they were wanting to pursue knowledge of how to fix it you know, how to fix this apparent state of severe depression, how to unlock it and how to reverse it. And through a range of quite um, uh, patient techniques, let's say, they stumbled, across, uh, they stumbled upon right. one technique that seemed right. to work. And that inspired, as you say, um, you know, other working together with other psychologists inspired um, CBT. So again, it's just, I guess in some ways I want to give names to these dogs that have helped us and through a lot of horrible things so that we can remember i guess how, how far the science has come how far dogs have come and and again like i say not to repeat those mistakes i guess in future so as a researcher and i've heard this bandied about the legal profession how do you deal with confirmation bias when you're researching we all have a point of view I have a point of view about a lot of things, but I'm not an expert about anything and nobody's really going to care. But you are a researcher, a zoologist. So how do you deal with your own confirmation bias if you have it? And also, how do you take a look at others' research and certainly the schools of thought in terms of research with animals in general, with certain dogs that are very divergent? Do you know, I've, um, I've done many interviews, as you can imagine, and that is probably the most important question that anyone could ask. And no one's ever asked it in my, in, in my life. So I think it's a really, really important question to ask a science writer. I'll give you an example. Like in this book, every scientist, you know, the process, the process of, of um, I still feel like I'm learning, I should say, but the process is very much one of reading as much as possible around the subject, looking for a thread and a narrative speaking to scientists and just generally exploring, discussing that narrative and whether it's realistic in a scientific context. And doing that for this book, every single scientist that I spoke to said, you need to make sure you challenge this narrative that dogs are um, alpha, you know, wolves in our house and we need to dominate them and we need to, um, you know, essentially uh, put them in their place. And I was told that so many times, it became a no-brainer. Okay, that will be one of the chapters, one of the um, phenomena that I um, invest in, in a chapter of the book. And upon starting to write that, I suddenly thought, actually, I know this could be, you know, I don't actually know, I don't actually know the deep context of this. I've been told by a lot of scientists, and certainly there's plenty of research reports backing it up. But, you know, what if I'm sort of accidentally stepping into a big hole here? And so essentially I had to move out of my normal zone, which is science, and speak much more to dog trainers um, and much more to others within the veterinary community and spend a lot of time ciphering ciphering through um, uh, kind of Facebook groups and uh, um, groups that are really uh, confident that basically punishment um, is a great way to train a dog. So it was really challenging, but it opened my eyes really. and, And I was glad if you like to have that kind of spider sense within right. me to sort right. of go hang on hang on hang on because i think it's really easy to do that and, and i think your first question you know is about what you kind of learned through this through a process through this book what i learned and i would say that it was that science and culture are actually quite strongly linked on the issue of dogs and there are different camps and different communities that think different things and to a degree science is one of those communities it's just that they're the community that is the only community supported by lots of evidence, I guess you could say. As a former teacher, I always enjoyed watching during, out of the classroom when they had a break, watching children play, especially when they're very young, kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade. It's just something pure and natural about that. The chapter I loved in this book is addressing dogs playing. It's the same thing. I've loved watching them interact and play. 
there's so much going on there that even the position when a dog lifts his rump up and has his face down the ground, the body language and the fact that dogs may look like they're fighting with each other. One dog's saying, come on, we want you to re-engage and let's play some more. And you really unravel a lot of stuff to the rest of us just watching, that's Dutch dogs playing. Some of them are fighting, some of them are cowering in the corner, some are carrying something in their mouth and went not letting go. They like to play and they like to play with others. You know, that it, I'm smiling because that is, I think that's my favorite um, chapter in the book. Um, and the reason I spend a whole chapter on dogs playing is because, uh, because again, like I sound like a, a broken record in some respects, but you know, to me in the 25 years ago, the field of zoology, there was a, there's so much, all of the books when it comes to animal cognition were about mirror tests, you know, and they're about deception in primates. So can gorillas or chimpanzees trick one another and looking at wild behaviors and captive, um, individuals as well and trying to find well how we're going to know when we see it that these animals have theory of mind and and i just absolutely love the fact that again dogs in our community spaces are screaming out we are very very super kind of cognitively endowed i guess you could say so why do i say that okay slow motion and i do this all the time now and i watch dogs at the park um slow motion you see dogs, particularly dogs that like to play a lot, you see them um, manipulating their opponent. So what does that look like? In, in my dog, it's a kind of a desperate obsession to be in the line of view, to be, right. you know, right. in eyesight. If a squirrel runs past and a dog um, that my dog's playing with sees the squirrel, then it's in my dog's interest. Quick, get round there, bark, 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 roll over. Okay, assessing whether a dog likes to run incredibly fast after my dog or whether my dog is allowed to chase the other dog, which he really likes to do. All of these things are playing out in sort of slow motion um, signals and communications. And I would say that is as complex. You know, I also, um, for about 10 years, um, would work in schools, actually, talking about zoology and doing workshops. And I I feel exactly the same way when you see even the kind of noises generally that younger children make when they're playing outside and the excitement it's the same thing. It's the same thing. So I absolutely adore the fact that, you know, one of our greatest leaps in understanding what dogs and by extension, other mammals are capable of that leap came not from a laboratory somewhere. (laughs) It came from just allowing animals to kind of be there, um, to be their relaxed selves, I guess. The hardest thing for me, I've had, I've got to love cats because I've had cats and dogs together is watching an animal at the end stage of his life. And I believe they should not suffer and you have to put them to sleep. It's very hard. And I don't want to, it's for me, it was personally very hard. And you talk about cognition. Are they aware that their life is ending and they're dying? It's, I mean, I, I think so many of your listeners will wonder the same thing. And I think exactly the same thing. I, I, I think about it and I've always thought with my, with my um, companions, cats and dogs, I've always had that. Every good moment I've had with our, our cats, for instance, I've just been like, okay, what's going to happen with this relationship? How is it going to end? I suppose as far as the science tells us at the moment, it, there doesn't seem to be that much evidence yet. I'm not saying there isn't i just mean right now there's not great evidence that they can reflect so they can automatically they can retrieve memories and thoughts and understand time frames in the same kind of way that we could um my gut feeling is that i think you know humans we think of ourselves as supremely conscious but actually our consciousness is in limited times of the day there's a lot of times of the day i don't really know what i'm doing (laughs) if i'm driving for instance i'm clearly you know taking control of the wheel i'm driving safely but you know 10 10 minutes or quarter of an hour will pass and i don't really know what happened there so i i feel like a lot of these animals potentially dogs they are living in moments of deeper consciousness 
So it wouldn't surprise me if dogs do have moments where they do reflect on, you know, whether it's, oh gosh, I am not as healthy as I once was, or whether it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to go the way of my um, best friend. <laughs> you know, we just don't know the answer to that. But I do feel like there is a scientific approach that's starting, and that's looking at um, fMRI scans of dogs in various emotional states. And it might be a question that we could answer in future. But at the moment, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of those beautiful mysteries, I suppose. Another beautiful mystery, and I have this question then when this segment with what did I miss, what did I get wrong? That I know we love our pets and we love animals. Do animals love us back? Do they have that capability? I, I used to say that we should use this word attachment when it comes to mammals. And I uh, uh, wrote many, many pieces Many articles saying like, look, lots of evidence for it. Let's let's use this word attachment. Um, and the reason being that it felt like more of a scientific word. You know, love is uh, the love I feel for my dog may be different to the love you feel for your cats and dogs. There's no way for us to really know that. So to get around that attachment was the term. Now, I've got to admit, looking at this, the range and the breadth of scientific research now, including fMRI studies, um, blood hormones, um, behavioral tests of how dogs behave when strangers walk into the house. All of these amazing bits of research. For me, I think there's enough now. There's so many pillars, if you like, to this argument that what some, but not all, dogs feel for humans could be described as love. And in a weird sort of way, it seems really obvious to say that, doesn't it? Because we kind of know that. But I think in a scientific context, I think we're, I actually think we're there. So in this book, it's the first time I've ever used that word. And I, I'm, I'm sticking by it and it feels right. And if that helps us treat dogs and respect their needs a bit better by calling it love, then I, I guess I'm, I'm okay with it. All right. So I like two more questions. Um, puppies usually have to stay with the mother. Ideally it's about 12 weeks. You can go eight to 12 weeks, sometimes 14 weeks when they are finally removed from the litter mates and the mother. Do they retain those memories and attachments? If you bring the litter mates back a year or two later, or you bring them back to the mother and the father, do they still retain those memories? We don't have particularly great evidence either way. We certainly, for siblings, you know, if you get puppies together, you know, two or, or three years later, there seems to be a bit, you know, you know what dogs are like. I think there's some dogs that might display it. There's some dogs that might know it, if you like, but they're not going to show it. And there's some dogs that, you know, just are too interested in the other smells all around. So I think that that kind of argument would apply to um, studies of um, of uh, of mother and puppy. My gut feeling is there will be a smell there. I mean, humans have kind of family smells, right. um, you know, and there's good evidence that we can kind of unconsciously detect that. So I think... Jury's out, but I don't see a reason why we should think they wouldn't um, be able to recognize, you know, their mother, definitely. All right, so we end the segment. Jules Howard with What Did I Get Wrong? What Did I Miss? Do you know, I'm embarrassed to say, do you want to know what I got wrong? Or All right, so you, you can turn, mean what? No, turn that around. That's fine. Are you there? Yeah. Yeah, you can turn. I think we, we Jules, can you hear us? Side, I think. All right, he froze. You want to... He's frozen on his side. He's froze. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Let's try. Could we end it? If not, you'll... We can still see you. We just can't... You're, like, frozen on us. Can you hear me, Jules? If you can hear us, just... Why don't you end your session and jump back in? Hi guys, sorry about that. All right, okay. Um, where do you want me to pick up the question? Uh, why don't you uh, start the segment over with uh, what did I get wrong? What did I miss? What did I get okay. wrong? Okay, all right. You mean, sorry guys, well, you mean gonna, what I'm, did I'm, I get wrong? I'm, yeah, I'm going to throw the question back to you and you can you can turn it around like you did. <laughs> so Jules, we're getting this segment with the way I always do. What did I get wrong? What did I miss? So I guess the thing that uh, I got wrong, I, I, I missed, it's, it's, I guess most people, a lot of people have commented really positively about me writing about my own um, dogs. And I tried not to do that. In previous books, I've talked much too much about myself. 
Um, and it's probably a bit annoying to a lot of readers who just want to hear about the science. So in this book, I thought, no, I won't. There's plenty of interesting characters in the history of dogs. Um, so I focused on them and only in short, brief windows did I talk about my own experiences. But I must admit, particularly like American audiences, it comes up quite a lot. Um, how much that kind of resonated. So, you know, I think that's something I, I, do I regret it? I think I do. But, you know, in some ways, I think it's healthy to to feel like that. I would be very concerned if I was coming out of this book going, this was a perfect book, because I think that, that can't exist, right? No, it, it can't. And that's a great way to end the segment. Uh, my guest has been Jules Howard. The book is called Wonder Dog, The Science of Dogs and a Unique friendship with humans. Um, it's been an honor, my friend. I look forward to coming up with you for more conversations. I know you're an expert about a lot of things, but this book was so special to me. I'm Larry Davidson. After a short break, some final thoughts. Two, one. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. What a wonderful program we have coming up in the near future, I hope, with Nikki French talking about novels in a sense, and also Jules Howard talking about dogs. In my life, dogs have meant an awful lot to me. I don't want to be maudlin. Even before I remember, there's a picture of me in our apartment building on the roof in Upper Manhattan with me, my mom, and my grandmother, and the dog, which used to be called Tar Beach. Over the years, growing up, Strays coming home. My parents and we had, when I was living at home, had a crazy, neurotic Cocker Spaniel and a beautiful, beautiful black and white German Shepherd named Hamlet. At that point, I was away at college and I got a call from my mom. And it was the end of the lacrosse season. And she said, um, the dogs got out. Hamlet was very smart. He figured out how to open the gate. It was a fenced in yard. And they found him on the side of the road. If you live in New York, you'll know about Southern State Parkway. And the crazy dog survived. I was so upset, I came home. This dog, when my mom went downstairs to do the laundry in the basement, would lay across the top of the stairs. Nobody could go down. He totally uh, protected her. And a family with a whole bunch of kids, you know what roughhousing is. We'd be rolling on the floor and screaming and punching. He would get so upset he would start barking because he thought we fooling around was a threat to my mom. And I never forgot him. Later on, when I became a teacher. I got a beautiful sled dog named uh, Flake Samoyot, all white and beautiful. And I was then living, my second year of teaching, I was sharing a big house with a bunch of people and we created an outside pen for him and I'm gone all day because I'm at school. I come home, the dog is missing, missing. We drove all over the area for days and days and days. For a last chance shot at finding it, my girlfriend at the time drove two towns over and they found him in the dog pound, matted up, dirty, filthy, but we got him back. I used to bring him to school, into my classroom. I was a special ed teacher. Years afterward, my students would come up and they moved on to other schools and they said, how is Flake? They still remembered him. That's the impact a dog could have. Now, in my life between being single, married and divorced, the golden retrievers came into my life. First golden retriever was named Boulder after Boulder, Colorado. My girlfriend Lee became my wife, had never ever had a dog before. At night when he was a puppy, I used to walk down the street for his last walk. And we were living in a house at that time that had a detached garage and the door didn't shut all the way. Across the street from a place that was like a deli in a food mart, because we have places like that, the feral cats knew where to get food. And late at night, I walked down the block and these two kittens came out of the garage, would walk down the block with us, with Boulder, who was kind of a puppy then, and walked back down to the back door of our house. It was gonna be a very bad winter. And we captured them, took them to the vet. 
got him tested for feline leukemia and everything else. And, lay, and then we named them after soap opera Luke and Laura. They groomed him. They became part of our family. And that was my special dog. And as he got older, you know, a lot of things were happening. And that was one of the hardest things I ever had to do. And I'm going to be very honest. I told my daughter, I want to be cremated. And I said, I want my ashes with Boulder's ashes because they kept him. And that's what he meant to me. And that may sound silly, but he is still very special to me. Uh, the second golden retriever was Ralphie. Um, was, excuse me, go back to, it was Roscoe. They found Roscoe roaming on the streets of Brooklyn. And it's a society on Long Island that rescues golden retrievers. And we took him in. He became part of the family. I had to let him go because once we're going through a divorce, and it was, it was an amicable divorce. I'm not complaining at all. The cats that we had in the house, the dog, because I was moving, went with my daughter and her mom. And he had a really good life till the end. Most recently, they, some people say it's rescue. Some people say it's an adoption. I'm not going to argue about that. They took in another dog. The latest dog, his name is Ralphie. For three and a half years, he was in somebody's backyard, probably chained up. And now he's part of the family. Um, there's an adjustment period there. But since we have such a good relationship and they're either at work or whatever, or they're going away, I get to see him almost every day. Now, he's adjusting because for three and a half years, I don't want to say he was quite a classic example of being abused, but I love that dog to death. And dogs are always going to be part of my life. That's it for me. Till next time, I'm Larry Davidson. Bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tired to